song, particularly with the story behind it. Because in all honesty, it's easy for us to sing that, but had we gone through what Horatio G. Spafford went through in losing all total five children, everything that he owned, to then turn around and sing that, to write that song, um, that's, that's incredible. Uh, but that's the kind of faith that he had. I trust you have that kind of faith as well. That you know Christ is your Savior, that no matter what comes down the road, no matter what the journey, you have enough confidence to say, Lord, it's well with my soul because you're my Savior. We are looking at the parables of Jesus Christ. The parables are stories that Jesus tells with a main spiritual truth attached to each parable. We dealt with the eight kingdom parables, is what we started with. Those were the parables that were early in the ministry of Jesus. The parables occur in the last year of the life of Jesus Christ. They are told in order to reveal truth and to conceal truth. They have a twofold purpose. In the first eight kingdom parables, Jesus talks about the first four, talk about what the kingdom looks like, who's in the kingdom. The next two, uh, the treasure and the pearl, talk about the cost that it involves to be part of the kingdom. And then the, the last two, the, uh, the one with the householder and the uh, reaping, the, the judgment time, uh, basically, and that, that was the story with the fish and the nets, talks about the idea that there's coming a time in which Jesus is going to sort out who's in the kingdom and who's not. And then uh, Jesus is going to tell a bunch of other parables, and we're going to get to the middle of the, the last year of Christ, and he's going to tell the parables that we're looking at right now. They're known as the parables of the lost things. Some people see all three of these stories as one story, but we're kind of breaking them down because I think there's principles to learn in each one, and yet there's principles that overlap in all of them. It come, they're written in Luke chapter 15, and in Luke 14, Jesus has talked about the cost of the discipleship. The Pharisees are now questioning him because Jesus is eating with publicans and sinners, and they don't believe that Jesus should be doing that. So the passage in Luke chapter 15 actually starts with the Pharisees grumbling about how come you're doing this, Jesus? This isn't right. So Jesus starts by telling them these parables of lost things. And basically, each parable, each one of the parables has this idea behind it. Something was lost, they searched for it, they found it, and they rejoiced. And so that becomes a theme in all three of these. We talked about the first one, which was the parable of the lost sheep. Some people don't believe this is important. I do believe it. I believe it is. I believe that you see a progression with each parable. You see a progression with the lost sheep in that it's a 1% loss, 1 out of 100. This morning when we talk about the lost coin, it's going to be 1 out of 10. It's a 10% loss. And then next week when we look at the parable of the lost son, we're going to see that it's a 50% loss. So I think what Jesus is doing is he's laying out this groundwork to say, look, if you don't care about 1%, maybe you'll care about 10. And if you don't care about 10, maybe you'll care about 50. So I think he's trying to make this point to the Pharisees. I think he's also poking the bear, so to speak. Because Jesus specifically chooses three stories that would have been hard for the Pharisees to deal with. 
And we're going to get into that this morning because, again, we talked about it last week when Jesus uses the parable of a shepherd because in the world of the Pharisees, shepherds were, were not something they wanted to be associated with. Uh, shepherds were looked down on. Shepherds could not keep all the ceremonial laws and all the religious laws that the Pharisees wanted to focus on. So they didn't have a lot of respect for shepherds. And I think you're going to see that in the next story, and then you're really going to see it in the last story. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, the passage in Luke chapter 15, and here's what he says. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And then, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels, of God, over one sinner who repents. So let's walk through it. Here's the first verse, because there's a ton packed in here. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Now, before we start digging into each phrase of this thing, let's make sure we understand houses and Bible times and coins. All right? So here's a picture of a typical setting in Jerusalem of how the houses were set up. This would be an average size house that you would have. Two stories, normally they would sleep in the upper story at night because that was cooler. That's where the breeze would come through. Um, if you'll notice, the windows are high, and they're high so that they don't let a lot of sun in. A typical house looked like this. This was the main living area. This is dining room, uh, living room, utility room, kitchen. It's all there. Okay. Now, if you'll notice... Again, they would sleep usually upstairs. The cooking was often done outside, uh, and there's not much. That was just kind of a storage place for them. There are a number of coins that are mentioned in the Gospels. Um, this was probably, the coin that we're talking about is probably a denarius. That's the one that's, that's, that's on your, as you're looking at it, it's on your left, okay, uh, all the way over. Uh, that was typically, again, a lot of debate on this, but that's typically about a day's wage, right? Um, often, there is a ceremonial necklace that women would wear, and we'll talk about that, in which they would take the coins and put them on a deal like this. So let's walk through, just so you understand those things. Now let's walk through our passage for a minute. The passage says, um, a certain woman. Now that's not a big deal to us. This would have been a big deal to them. Because you see... In this time, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not hold women in a high position of respect. In fact, women were often looked at as subservient. Uh, women were often looked at down upon. Um, in fact, it is when Christianity comes onto the scene for the first time, the role of women is elevated. And so Jesus here does something unique, I think, in the fact that he chooses a woman in this story. Just like in the parable of the treasure um, and, the, and the treasure and the pearl, he chose a woman. He's doing this, I think, to poke the bear. Because the second he starts talking about a woman, a Pharisee would have gone, oh, women, oh, oh. But Jesus places great value on men and women equally. And so when Jesus looks at this, 
Jesus, I think, purposely chooses the idea of a woman. And he says, a woman has ten coins, and so we don't know what that is. Here, here's, here's a couple of thoughts. Um, typically, a denarius was a day's wage. So think of this as, I don't, whatever you make for a day, okay? Whatever you make in your job for a day, let's say you have ten days worth in your wallet, and you lose a day of it. How much of an impact is that to you? Some people believe that the ten coins were simply her life savings, if you will, because they didn't have banks, so you either had to hide your, your money somewhere or you kept it with you. So it may have been she had a pouch or a, a deal that she kept these ten coins in, and uh, she realized that she lost one. The other thought is you, that necklace that I just showed you, Okay, the reason is there's some thought to this and that this is true. This was true of that culture. When a woman got married, she was often given a necklace of 10 coins, or she was often given 10 coins and often they would make it into a necklace. It was a way, it was considered, if you will, her dowry. And married women on nice occasions would wear that as a symbol of the fact that they were married much like we do a wedding ring today. Some people believe that this was, in fact, the law at the time, the Jewish law at the time said that if you had to pay back a debt and you had to sell everything that you owned to pay back a debt, the one thing they couldn't touch was this necklace. It was actually free from having to pay debt. It, was, it had that kind of value in that culture. So some people believe when it talks about that she has 10 coins and she loses one, they're talking about this necklace where all of a sudden she realized one of the coins had fallen off, kind of like if you've got an engagement ring and the diamond falls off, you know, you go look for it. You, well, yeah, if it was a good diamond, uh, you go look for it. If it was zirconium, you go on eBay and buy it for another 15 bucks. But and, anyway, so it was one of these deals where so she, she may have lost that. The text is really important because it says that when she realizes that she has lost it, she starts to search. And it says, it's interesting because it says one of the ways that she searches is she lights a lamp. Now, here's what you need to remember. In this culture, we cook, they cook predominantly outside. Inside was mainly used for keeping stuff um, or getting in out of the weather. Uh, much like the huts that when we were in PNG, much much like the huts in Papua New Guinea, you know, they, most of their life was spent outside of the hut. They would go into the hut only to sleep or to get out of the weather, and it's kind of the same way. The pots and pans and stuff like that would be kept in there, um, and so it's not like us today where at night, you know, what do you do? You go flip on the lights. Okay, in order for something to be lit in this culture, you would they would have a little lamp stand. It was like a little I have one, I should have brought it, but a little thing probably about this big. They would put oil in it with a wick and they would light it, and that would be the light. Now, in order to do that, you had to put oil in it. So you didn't burn the oil unless it was important, because that was costing you money. Uh, kind of like the old days when they do the kerosene lamps and all that kind of thing. You know, you didn't go, okay, hey, we're just going to. Let's just turn on all the lights so we can sit around the table. No, no, no. You, you only turned on the lights, lit the lamps when you had to. So the fact that she does this tells us a little bit something about how important it was to her. 
Now, most of us, when we think of a floor, we think of it in terms of the floors that we have or maybe a stone floor. If you noticed in that picture, the, sto- the floors were dirt. So what they would do in this culture is they have dirt floors, and they would take bulrushes or, in our co- think, straw. And they would spread straw out on the floor. And so what we have here is we have a picture which she says she sweeps it. It's not like you and I where we go in and we sweep it up and we go, okay, hey, here's the coin. No, in, in this context, here's what would happen. Here's what she did. She grabbed a lamp and she lit it. And then she would, she would set it on, on maybe on a little shelf thing and she would sweep an area. And then she'd take the lamp and she would get down and she would set the lamp down and she would start sorting through the straw or the bulrushes and moving the dirt aside in order to find this coin. Then she would get up And she'd sweep up another area, and she would get back down, and she would start going through the whole thing. Remember, these rooms are dark. It's not like our world where we just flip on a light. So all of a sudden now you have this woman who is diligently on her hands and knees, in the dirt, with the light, sorting through all the straw to try to find this one coin. This would have taken a tremendous... I mean, you know... One guy said, this is like a needle in a haystack. This is not some little thing where it's like you and I, you know, okay, you know what, I'll, I'll let the Roomba run and then I'll pull out the thing and dump it out and there's my coin. That's not what this was like. This was a tremendous amount of effort for her to go to do this. It's costing her money with the oil. It's costing her time and effort and energy. It's dirty. It's a mess. She's having to sort through all these things because this coin has so much value to her. And so that's, what's, that's what you see in this story. Um, let me take a quick rabbit trail. For those of you who have been around scriptures for a while, um, there's a really interesting study in this story. It says, the story says she searches for it. Later, Jesus in his life says this, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's the same word. The same word that's used for her to search for this coin is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, I seek the lost. I search for them. I want them. Uh, What's also interesting is, uh, we're going to get to this in a second, where she says she finds the coin, and she says, and when she has found it, she calls her friends. When Jesus is teaching, Jesus says, one of the things that Jesus says is, if you really want to find your life, you have to lose it for my sake. It's the same word. It's the same word. Just as this woman has to find this coin and does all this stuff, fine. Jesus says in the same way. You really want to find your life? You want to have the joy that really comes from life? Then you know what? You're going to have to go out and spend your life on something other than you. You're going to have to focus on me, and you will find life, just like this woman found the coin. Okay, um, That was just a rabbit trail, but I had to go there because that was fun study. So anyway, so coming back to it, here's what's going on in the passage. Here's what he says. Uh, he goes on and says this. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found, I think this is interesting, my lost coin. I tell you in the same way. There's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus now wraps this story up. 
And what he does is he's looking at the Pharisees and, and give you a kind of a roundabout way where he brings this full circle. The story starts out with the Pharisees griping and grumbling because Jesus is with publicans and sinners. Jesus spins it and says, it's not about grumbling because I'm with sinners. It's about rejoicing because they come to a Savior. And he talks about this idea of joy and rejoice. Six times in these three stories, he talks about this idea of joy. So it's an important theme in this, in this, these three parables. And then he tags it with this idea, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repent. You have to understand that Jesus was attacking directly something the Pharisees believed. Actually, two things. The Pharisees believed two things. They believed, number one, that God took great joy when a sinner was wiped out. When a Gentile died, they believed God in heaven got excited. Good, there's another bad person gone. That's what they believed. Because they believed that they were the good people, and God wanted to honor the good people, and so God, wanted, God wiped out the bad people. When God wiped out the bad people, he was excited. That's what the Pharisees believed. In fact, they said, there's joy in heaven over one who is destroyed, one who, is, one who dies. That was a teaching of the rabbi. So this concept is there with, with them. So when Jesus spins this and says, no, let me tell you something. There's joy in heaven over someone who repents. Your attitude that I shouldn't be spending time with these people is way off base. Your attitude should be, there's great joy because I'm spending time with these people because they may come to God. That needs to be your attitude. The second thing that Jesus confronts in these stories is this idea. And you're really going to see us play out next week. They believed that people sought God. That was the only way that you could get, is you had to seek God. These stories teach God seeks you. And that was a revolutionary concept. The idea that God would be concerned for me, that was revolutionary. Because in their minds, God did, God, you had to go find God. And in fact, there's some people that believe there's a reason Jesus told this story. In the ancient, in the teachings of the ancient rabbis, in the teaching of the rabbis, there is a very similar story to this told. The story goes something like this. There was a man who lost a coin, and he spent a tremendous amount of time searching for it. The rabbis then taught. The man was wrong because he should have been taught, he should have spent his time searching the law of God. It was foolish to spend your time over something temporary like money when you should be searching for something like the law of God. That's what the, that's what the rabbis actually taught. So some people believe that Jesus actually is spinning off of that story. And instead of a man who loses something, it's a woman. And instead of searching for God's truth, it's the idea that God finds them and, and it is a spin on that. So that's how some people look at the story. But the idea is this, that heaven rejoices because these people come to God. And like you said, in this story, she rejoices. She brings all of her friends and neighbors and family and says, I found my coin. That's why some people believe it had to do with that, that necklace of, of, of um, uh, your wedding uh, rather than just ten coins. 
you know, that, that in your lost one, they, they think that that's why it has that value. The idea is this. It doesn't matter. The idea is this. Whatever it was that she lost had tremendous value, and it was worth celebrating when she was done. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach these guys. So you go, okay, nice story. I'm going to work tomorrow. What do you got for me? All right, so here we go. First principle. Everyone has value to God. Now, let me say it again, because I think we, we missed this. Everyone has value to God. Um, this week, and it was somebody in church. I, don't, I, think it was, I think it was somebody in church. I don't remember. But somebody posted this picture of this guy who had all of these facial modifications. And I mean, I'm talking about tattoos and piercings and big ears. Even had gone to the point of modifying his nose where the big holes all the way through it. And, and I mean, you know, it's one of those people that you kind of looked at and went, oh, um, who would do that to themselves? That person has value to God. You won't see a set of eyeballs this week that doesn't have value to God. This coin had tremendous value to this woman. And so one of the principles that you see in this story, and this is what he's trying to get across to the disciples, or to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they, in their minds, shepherds didn't have a lot of value. Women didn't have a lot of value. Gentiles didn't have a lot of value. But Jesus here says, no, you need to understand, the coin has a value, guys, just as people have value. And I think we forget that because we tend to categorize people. And we tend to throw people into nice big categories, liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican, mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, you know, Iowa, Nebraska. You know, I mean, we throw people in these categories and we tend to think, well, that's the enemy. No, that's a person that has value to God. Here's something I was challenged with this week. Um, at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die uh, and, and you're going to have my funeral. And, well, somebody's going to have it. I won't, I won't do it. Uh, but, I mean, you know, you're going to have my funeral. And... Depending on when you schedule it, people are going to come. Here's my thought. How many people that are going to come that are like me versus how many people that aren't like me? How many people are going to be there that don't hold the same political values I have? How many people who don't hold... In other words, the issue is, has my world become so closed up, that it's only people who are like me? And so I started looking through my Facebook friends and my social media stuff, and I was like, no, they're really not like me. Um, no, okay, yeah, they're on the other side. But I started thinking about it. I thought, do I have relationships with people that are not like me? Because we should. That's what Jesus is doing in this story. He's, there, he's being accused of being with publicans and sinners, people who aren't like him. And yet they, people, this is amazing to me, people who aren't like him, like him, and want to be with him. And that ought to be a huge challenge to us. Because you see, this is what we forget. I don't care what a person looks like. I don't care what a person believes. I don't care how a person acts. They have value to God. 
And we have got to remember that. Sometimes we forget that. And we tend to throw people in these categories and we say, oh, I'd never be like that. Oh, can you believe that person does this or that? But stop. Everyone has value to God. Second idea. Um, In order to search and seek lost people, it involves a tremendous amount of time. It involves a tremendous cost, and it's dirty and messy. This woman had to get down on the floor and sort through all of this stuff. Her hands got dirty. She had to spend money for oil in the lamp. And she dug through all of this, trying to find this one lost coin. And here's what you're going to find. When you get involved in people who aren't like you, it's expensive, it's dirty, it's messy, it's time-consuming. It's not neat little tidy packages. It's because, and that's what you see in the life of Christ. Christ takes a lot of heat for, for this kind of thing. You know, Zacchaeus, come down, let's go to your house. Woman at the well, what in the world, Jesus, are you doing? Don't you know who she is? You can't talk to people like this. You know what people are going to say? Messy. Messy. And, and I think we have to remember that as we get involved in people who are not who are lost, people who need Christ. It's going to get messy, and it's going to get time-consuming, and it's going to get difficult, and it's going to get hard. And that's okay. That's okay. We forget that. Third thing that I see, and this is a thing that this is a thing that God has probably impressed on my heart more than anything else in this past week. The value of one was one sheep. One coin. Next week it'll be one son. Have you ever stopped to think about the value of one? Think about the life of Jesus for a minute. Because this fast, what fascinates me about the life of Jesus is the idea of if you want probably the most incredible study of time management, look at the life of Jesus. He's got three and a third years here of ministry to impact the entire world. So. So you would think, if that's all the time you got, you're going to make the biggest bang for your buck as quickly as you can, right? Isn't that what culture would teach us? So it looks to me like it's incredibly a wasteful use of your God resources to heal one person when you could heal a hundred. But we don't find Jesus saying, hey, next Tuesday, five o'clock, massive healing, anybody wants to come, just show up. You don't see that in life, Christ. Does he spend time teaching multitudes? Yeah, he teaches 4,000 on a bank one time, 5,000 on another, another time. You see him doing that. <clears throat> but what amazes me is the number of times you see him dealing with one. whole bunch of people crowding around and packed, walking. He's walking along. All of a sudden, he looks up. He sees Zacchaeus in a tree. He says, hey, come on down. Let's talk. Wait a minute, Jesus. What about that? you You got 100 people around you. Why one guy? Woman at the well. Disciples are out doing her thing. Why wasn't Jesus with the disciples? He's by himself standing at a well, and he's talking to a woman who the only reason she's there is because it's the only time she can come without being ridiculed and mocked and maybe even uh, punished. So she's standing there at the well, and Jesus is standing there talking to her. 
So much so, when the disciples come up, they go, hey, 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 you can't be doing this. Oh, no, no, this is what I'm about. One. He's walking. There's crowds. I mean, it is packed. I mean, you got to understand, by, by, particularly by the end of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus shows up, and it's instant crowd. So Jesus is walking. Some woman reaches out in faith, touches the hem of his garment. So you know what? If I can, if I can just touch his... I just touch his robe, I'll be good. Reaches out and touches him. What does Jesus do? Stop, everybody. Back up. First of all, I would have been scared to death. Who touched me? And I'm this disciple. I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? Who touched you? Pick a group. Everybody's crowding around you. Pick anybody. They're all cramming in. What do you mean, who touched you? And this woman. Again, woman. I did. He stops the whole crowd to focus on one. One person. Your faith has made you whole. You see this over and over and over again in the life. The, the most famous verse in all the Bible comes with a conversation of one person, Nicodemus. Over and over again, you see this in the life of Jesus, the value of one. Here's why I think that's so important. We're in a culture which emphasizes big. We're in a culture which emphasizes numbers. And we've missed the value of one. My challenge to you and my challenge to me this week is to find one person, just one. The value of one person this week that you impact for the life of Jesus Christ. One person. Not a whole big group, but one. The value of one. Don't minimize the value of one. Here's a question for you. What's one soul worth? What's one soul worth? Because God gives us the opportunity this week to impact one soul. And Jesus, when he's on this earth, shows us that it's important to focus on one. Not just be a, you don't look at it and go, oh, you know, I can't preach like you can. I can't, you know, I can't do this and nobody wants to listen to me. One. One person. I guarantee you there's one person in your life that God can use you at this week. The value of one. The fourth thing is this, and this is the last thing. What brings you joy? This is an important question. Because what brings you joy will tell you a lot about your heart. It'll tell you about where you want to spend your money, where you want to spend your time, where you want to spend your energy, where you want to spend your efforts. What brings you joy? In this story, in the last story, they rejoiced because a sheep was found. In this story, she rejoices because a coin is found. Jesus spins it and says, in the same way, heaven stops and rejoices when a soul comes to repent and put their faith and trust in Jesus. What brings heaven joy? When someone comes to Christ. When someone comes to Christ, heaven rejoices. What brings you joy? It'll tell you a lot about your priorities. It'll tell you a lot about your, 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 your worldview. It'll tell you a lot about yourself. There are certain things that I like to do that bring me incredible, and, and I don't want to know, I don't know that the word is joy as much as it is happiness. Um, you know, there are some things that, that honestly, I, I look forward to 
and I love doing. And, you know, for me, I mean, one, you know, I love getting on my motorcycle and riding. I've been frustrated the last couple of weeks because I'm listening to bikes go down the road. And I'm not taking mine off the stand. I'm not taking the, the cover off. And there's a reason because I know as soon as I do, all the things that I should be doing, I won't do. So I said, I'm not going to take that off yet. Um, you know, for me, I, I, you know me, I love to blow glass. I love to get in the, the hot shop and, and, and do stuff. That, that, that's relaxing. That's enjoyable to me. But I don't, know that it, I don't know that it's like joy. Joy is that thing that it just, I don't think you have to do it. It just warms your heart. What is it in your world? When you get the opportunity to share Christ with somebody, when you help somebody and they make a decision to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing? What brings you joy? Because this is a story about joy. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, and he's saying this, look, guys, you're griping and grumbling because I'm trying to reach these people. You should be joyful. And when one of them decides to follow me and follow God and do what's right, you ought to be excited. Not griping and grumbling because I'm spending my time with them instead of you. And he drives this home to them. He's going to drive it home even more in the next story. So I end this morning with these ideas, with this challenge, if you will. Jesus reminds us that each person has value in the eyes of God. It takes great effort and commitment to seek out people who are lost. Jesus put great value in dealing with people individually. One-on-one. We have to learn to see the value of one soul and rejoice when that person chooses to follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, we all know people that people have given up on. We all know people, Lord, that honestly, if we were to be truthful with ourselves, we would Love to get involved in that person's life, but it's just going to be too much risk, too much effort, too much, too hard. Lord, may we see the heart and may we have the kind of heart that you have. May we have the heart of of these stories, Lord, to be able to seek and to search until we find that which we need. Lord, may you help us to be able to have a passion and a persistence in sticking with it to be able to invest in other people. And Lord, will you use us? Uh, Lord, we're not saying that we're worthy or qualified or anything else, but Lord, we're willing, so, so use us. Help us to open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to the opportunities around us and use us this week to honor you in all that we do. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, let's stand together, and we're going to sing Lamb of Glory. We're actually going to sing birth, both verses, Juanita. So, wow, yeah. Uh, stand together and sing.
we uh, are letting our folks online join us today as well. So uh, for those of you that are in the building, uh, there's a communion cup somewhere around you. Uh, there's a, I, I like to shake them up because they do sit here for a week or so. So uh, tend to settle out and then you pull off the cellophane on the top and, uh, or the, yeah, cellophane on the top of the foil and then uh, you have what you need. We end every service with communion. And when I first started here, I thought that was really odd. And that was something I wanted to change because I had never done that. We did it once every three months in the churches that I was at before that, maybe once a month in Psalm. But, and we always had invitations at the end of the service. And uh, one of the things I came to realize pretty quickly is sometimes with an invitation, it's easy to let it apply to somebody else. But communion, ending a service every Sunday with communion makes me and forces me to deal with me. So I see this as a little bit more effective sometimes than an invitation because it makes every one of us think about our relationship to the Lord. It's a time that we celebrate and we remember the cross and what Jesus has done for us. We, as we just talked about, we rejoice in the salvation that we have in Christ. So it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of fellowship. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of celebration. I am able to take communion, understanding that I have a hope, a savior, a future, different purpose for life, if you will. As I mentioned in my message, I was struck by the fact of Jesus and the importance and the value of one person. So as I was reflecting on communion and on Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, one of the things that struck me is this. When Jesus is on the cross, he makes seven statements from the cross. Seven statements are the last thing that was important to him, if you will. Two of those are directed at individuals. One is directed to, we believe, John saying, take care of your mother. And the other one to a thief who wanted to put his faith and trust him. And I struck that even on the cross, even in the last moments of his life, the value of one person was so important. And it's a reminder to me that, and I, I, I don't understand this, but I understand the Scripture idea and the Scripture teaching behind it. Is that Christ died for you. Christ died for me. And if I was the only person, if you were the only person, he still would have gone to the cross. That's why John writes and he says, we love him because he first loved us. If you're here this morning and you have enjoyed, tasted of the love of God, you've put your faith and trust in Christ, I want to challenge you this week. As we take communion, we're thankful, we're grateful, but we're also challenged to go out and honor Christ this week in all that we say and do. Let God use you. Let's pray. Lord, thanks. Thanks for all you've done. Help us as we seek to serve you this week, as we ask in your name.
All right. Lord bless you. Have a good week. And I want to challenge you to pray a very, very dangerous prayer. <clears throat> Those of you who are weak can't pray it. All right? So here's the prayer. Lord, use me to help one person this week. Lord, just use me. Watch what he does. I say it's a dangerous prayer because it's a prayer God will answer. And he'll answer it in ways that may just shock you. But it's a prayer that can change the life of one soul this week. Lord bless you. Have a great week. We will see you next Sunday, Lord willing. Thank you.